rather than trying to cover your weaknesses, you're playing on your strengths. And this doesn't make you exhausted. Rather, it gives you additional energy. This week, we are brought to you by Attest. Attest is a consumer research platform that enables brands to make customer understanding a competitive advantage with continuous insights. By combining unparalleled speed and data quality with on-demand research guidance, the platform makes it simple and fast to uncover opportunities with consumer data and grow without guesswork. Hello and welcome to the Shiny New Object Podcast. My name is Tom Ollerton. I'm the founder of Automated Creative and this is a weekly podcast about the future of marketing and advertising. Every week I have the pleasure and the privilege of interviewing a very clever, usually very senior person from the industry and this week is no different. I'm on a call with Anna Musikina, who is CMO, Digital Transformation and Ecom Acceleration at L'Oreal. So Anna, for anyone who doesn't know who you are and what you do, can you give us a bit of a background? Hi, sure. Uh, I'm actually a financial manager by training, and I started my career as a journalist in, in newspapers and eventually at a radio station. So I'm getting back the vibe now, which is very nice. Um, and by doing this, I got... Uh, into this very interesting world of uh, very exciting people who are successful in business or politics or running some NGOs. Um, and this launched me into several endeavors in event management and PR and sales. And eventually uh, I ran several small business initiatives in media and advertising. And this is how I encountered digital for the first time. And my first digital project was actually to move an actual physical phone dictionary into a website. Um, and this, this was so fascinating and so captivating. And I went to study coding and web design, and I wanted to really understand how this works and uh, how you can build those virtual worlds, basically, and, and, and services and ads and, and media, et cetera, et cetera. And this is how I landed in a startup. Um, and after a while, uh, L'Oreal hired me uh, when I joined L'Oreal, I was one of the few digital experts. Uh, my first year, I think I spent a lot of time explaining to people how social media actually works and what it means to invest into this uh, and building websites and search strategies and so on. Um, and then uh, in 2014, the company embarked globally on a huge digital transformation. Uh, and of course, it brought about a lot of interest and a lot of sponsorship, but also um, budgets and autonomy and projects. And that was, that was extremely exciting. I was very happy to be in this place at uh, the right time with the right skill set. Uh, and eventually, uh, uh, I headed uh, and I landed in Paris in 2018 uh, to lead L'Oreal Paris Digital Transformation Globally as the CEO of the brand and the, and the Paris team. And now I'm responsible for what we call uh, digital and marketing Officer Scope, CDMO role for a number of countries in Europe. And in my scope, I actually have uh, uh, like everything from everything digital from e-commerce and business to data, uh, advocacy, media, uh, and also CMI, uh, which is consumer research and, and market insights. So this function is at the core of the business now, which is uh, 
a lovely change compared to what was happening when they just joined the company. You sound like a busy lady. <laughs> that sounds like a lot of late nights and weekends to me. Brilliant. Well, what a career, uh, what a perspective. So I'm keen to dive into that a bit. So what new belief or behavior has made your work life better in the last five years or so? It's a great uh, question. And I'm, I, I hope that if I share this, maybe it will help somebody else also to change their work-life balance and their emotional stability situation to the best. Because the belief that really changed my attitude and my approach uh, was, it was actually the, the cancellation of a belief, I would rather say, that I had before, which was that you have, if you're not tired, it means you didn't do a good job. Um, and I don't know where it came from, but at some point I realized that I could achieve a lot of results and I could be, I could, I could have a very successful day with some uh, progress and impact. And I could see that the things were moving forward in the right direction. But if I don't feel exhausted at the end of the day, I kind of feel unsatisfied. Uh, and I started questioning, like, why would that be? And um, one person I was uh, talking to about this told me, look, if you have this attitude and this belief, and if you follow it, it means you will never actually find a job which will make you happy because you will be looking for a job that will make you tired. Um, I think this is basically now called, and this I discovered recently, this approach is now called uh, positive psychology and, and, and growth mindset. When uh, rather than trying to cover your weaknesses, you're playing on your strengths. And this doesn't make you exhausted. Rather, it gives you additional energy. So the, the ideal work-life situation is actually when you utilize what you're talented at or you're good at, what you like doing at work, which drives results, obviously. Uh, and then you build a collaboration with people who have other strengths or you build a team which covers your weaknesses, you hire your weaknesses, basically, which is a, a not a new thing. But when you think about it in the perspective of what work gives you, does it make you tired or does it make you excited, energetic? Um, I think this is something that we should all look at. I, it may be especially with the COVID situation and, and all the changes it brought about of the attitude towards work and its place in our lives and how much time we're actually happy to spend. I think this is very relevant. For me, it, it brought a lot of, a lot of change and, and made a huge difference. So at the end of the day, are you no, no longer exhausted and now cruising into half past six in a calm, meditative way? Or are you, are you still fighting that demon? Totally. No, I, I, uh, I think we are not at full liberty to live our dear lives. None of us are. But at least I feel much more enthusiastic and empowered uh, and much more motivated to start my days, even if they're challenging, even if I have some stressful work ahead or some important discussion or, uh, you know, a crisis situation, when I approach this from the perspective of, okay, how can I use what I'm good at to solve this? Uh, th this brings a huge, a huge difference. And then even if I'm tired some days, at least I know that if I'm not tired, it doesn't mean that I did a bad job. It doesn't mean that I didn't perform at my best. It just meant that I 
found the model to run the day, which works for me. I think it's very, it's very important. So let's get into some advice. What's your top marketing tip? What's that bit of advice you give to your teams most often based on your expertise? I would say, um, and again, this might sound pretty basic. I would say the best marketing tip I received was to never, ever try to use my own experience as a, as a proxy to what the result can be. Meaning we need to rely on real data to make decisions rather than just making decisions based on our own personal experience or our family experience or what our relatives would say about a campaign or about a creative or about approach or strategy or whatsoever. Um, And fortunately in digital, we have data in abundance. Um, So then there is now another debate more to say, okay, should we still leave some space to intuition? Because this is a powerful um, superpower that humans have making decisions based on some experience, some information that they have in their head, but they can actually realize. And then the decision just pops out, even if it's contradictory somewhat to the facts and figures that you have on the table. Nevertheless, not trying to uh, project yourself into your consumer shoes. I think this is one of the most powerful marketing advice you can give. So up until relatively recently, I would have agreed with you 100%. And I heard someone say this on a podcast, and I'd love to give them credit, but I just can't remember who it was. But they said, and I think I've said this in every podcast since, is that data is the shadows of people, right? So, oh yeah, we can see that, I don't know, 57% of people click on this messaging theme most often, right? Or like, you know, this, this color button drives more. Like that is a shadow of what people are right it's not you, you can't then go into each of those clicks and then write to the person and say why why did you click on orange and not blue you know it's you don't actually know the story it's a shadow of what someone did it's the shadow of the, what they were thinking and feeling and doing and living at that point in time however the, the however they're kind of well i think that's a real explained thing and I'm, I'm absolutely i if i'm running a campaign i don't know for for mars pet care for example like i'm not i'm not i'm not a pet owner so it's it's kind of crazy for me to go well i think that dog looks better than that cat for example but at least if you're vaguely related to the target audience and may even sit within the target audience your real lived feelings about that aren't shadows of what you would do so yes it's not got the scale yes there's loads of data but i still don't really see that much data that isn't just shadows of people as useful as it is so keen to get your view on that i agree with you and it's a nice uh, perspective on the same question of course if you are truly a part of the target audience then your perspective and your judgment and your emotions are completely valid and and impactful and valuable. Although what we see uh, oftentimes is people judging on things they have nothing to do with. So this is something that I think needs to be avoided. And then when we talk about data, we don't only talk about data like clicks or CTRs or view-through rates, but we also talk about consumer focus groups and uh, research and panels and um, you know home visits and things like this, which actually are eye-opening for so many marketers, especially when you are in a category or in a business for quite some time already and you think you know it all, but actually the things change so fast that when you go and connect with real people who are using your products or your category, 
often, about every time you discover so much that you had no idea about just because you were running on your old biases and your old, you know, patterns. Um, so I think this reconnection with consumers, and I agree, this should be live consumers rather than just shadows. It's a very nice way to put it. It's true that you have the, the kind of the initial consumer and you have all the, the, the trace and the long tail of the actions and consequences or whatever can happen uh, along the journey. This episode of the Shiny New Object podcast is brought to you in partnership with Manfest. Whether it's live in London or streamed online to the global marketing community, you can always expect a distinctive and daring blend of fast-paced content, startup innovation pitches, and unconventional entertainment from Madfest events. You'll find me causing trouble on stage, recording live versions of this podcast, and sharing a beer with the nicest and most influential people in marketing. Check it out at www.madfestlondon.com. We could talk all this for the rest of the podcast, but we're not. It's the Shiny New Object podcast, and your shiny new object is virtual goods. So I, I think I know what virtual goods are, but could you give the audience a 101 and then tell me why that is your shiny new object? Sure. So virtual goods actually are pretty hard to define. If you go online, you'll find a bunch of different definitions. Uh, but generally, we can say virtual goods are non-physical assets that you can purchase uh, that don't really exist in physical space. Typically, the, the example that is brought is the, the gaming assets, anything that you can buy in games from weapons or avatar skins or, you know, berries or whatever you need for, for the gaming experience. But now more and more, we see uh, uh, different other players come into this field. And actually, the size of the market is estimated at around 50 billion for last year. And the projections are crazy, like from, from tripling to, you know, quadrupling, like somebody says it's going to be 500 billion in, in, in five years. So um, when I'm looking at this, I'm thinking about like my own experience in social media and, and video chats and games. And it's true that it's virtual and it sounds very futuristic and maybe even uh, frightening to say that people live part of their lives in virtual worlds. But actually, Actually, we are doing this. And when we're doing this, we are ready to spend real money on things which don't exist, but which deliver real emotions. So if you think about gaming experiences, this is all about uh, expressing yourself. And if you're ready to pay for things to express yourself in real world, IRL, why don't we think that people will be ready to pay real money to express themselves in virtual worlds, especially if they become a significant part of our lives. And then behind this, um, there's a lot of uh, fun discussion about, you know, how funny this would be to run a video call, actually sitting on your sofa and having a virtual avatar speaking instead of you with a perfectly dressed, uh, you know, visual and made up and hairstyle and so on. And you're just in your pajamas on the beach or whatever. Uh, yeah. And pajamas <laughs> on the beach is weird. <laughs> Either or. But, uh, you know, there are so many implications. Again, if we think about how we spend our time and where do we express ourselves? Where do we communicate? Where do we socialize? 
a bigger and bigger part of it happens in, in virtual reality. So virtual goods actually become, become huge. And then we've seen a lot of brands moving into this space, especially in fashion and Nike with their acquisition of Artifact, which is a company which makes virtual basically sneakers, if I simplify it like till the end. So I think this is super exciting because this is another take on culture and uh, human psychology and the value that different things provide to us and how we value, what value we attribute to different items, whether physical or, or virtual. That's why, that's why I think it's super exciting. Yeah, I echo that. And it's only middle-aged and old people you have to have the argument with. Like, oh, what's all that about virtual goods? It's NFTs. It's all nonsense. Like, but yeah, you only think that because you haven't grown up with that. Whereas everyone who's grown up with it, it's completely obvious. You know, like my godson has to have the right skin on his gun in Fortnite, or he's just not as cool as his mates. And it's like five ninety nine. And I can understand. I understand why his mum is. is begrudgingly pays for, I don't know, whatever skin it is. But that is the equivalent of him having the right t-shirt or the right trainers in the real world. And I, I totally get it. And I, I saw a great presentation at Madfest by someone at ABM Bev, and I can't remember the lady's name. It's fantastic. She was talking about uh, Balenciaga and, and their Fortnite, their, their Fortnite crossovers where you could buy the Balenciaga jumper, which is a white jumper that said Fortnite on it, I think. It was like $700. Oh, OMG. But you could buy the same thing within Fortnite for $7.99 or £1 or, or whatever it was. So there's, there's all these different kind of entries entry points to the thing and I love that balance between the the real and the digital like if you buy the most beautiful and hard wearing pair of shoes or trainers like once you've been out drinking they're never the same again right you know what I mean they're just the spell has broken whereas a digital good is always shows up always looks incredible always looks immaculate and that and, and the, the dream sustains so like I just see it as, as a normal thing and so it takes too much of the microphone here but like value is virtual anyway right you know the value of a, of a coin or a note is, is virtual if I have a painting on my wall like you know if you had the Mona Lisa, it, the actual parts itself would be worth almost nothing, but the value is, is is virtual. And I think that it's no different for me. So my question to you is, who owns this at a brand? Like if a brand are going to create virtual trainers, virtual dresses, virtual makeup, but who who is this marketing? Is this product? Who should be standing up at a brand who doesn't have virtual goods and saying, I'm owning this? This is, a, this is a great question. And I think it depends on the stage we're at. And this is kind of a function of the stage we're at with the virtual market and the virtual economy. I would say for now, for brands, this is more of a branding exercise. So it should be owned by whoever owns the brand, the brand health, the brand equity, the brand communication, maybe. Um, but then we see more and more brands assessing this as a revenue stream and looking at it as a potential growth channel, like uh, Gucci with their last case, the virtual bags that they sold, like some virtual bags sold for like 4000 There was a virtual bag that sold more expensive than its physical copy, actually. So it's... it's uh, it can really become for some brands a significant revenue stream, maybe several years down the road. So then it moves more into business and more sales or e-commerce or however you define it. But I think right now, for it to make sense for a brand, it needs to fit within the, the values and the sense of purpose and the relationship the brand wants to build with the, with the audience. Your example uh, really rang a bell with me because my 
own personal investigation of the of the virtual world and and the world of virtual goods started with my daughter getting into Roblox, and and when she started asking <laughs> real money for some virtual stuff in Roblox, I was like, what what is that? Like, why why do you need that? Why can't you just play the game and that's it? But then when you understand all the again social communication, all the implications like. And, and the, in, in the interactions and, and how it changes the experience in the game. But actually, the most interesting part is that there is the other side of it. There are the creators who actually earn money on that. So it's not only that you spend money on that, but you can build a business around that. And this is also an interesting opportunity. Yeah, I, I, I try to motivate her to become a creator in Roblox and start selling her own skins and clothes and whatever items for the avatar. It didn't really work out just as of now, but I'm still hopeful. <laughs> but uh, for the brands, it can also be a good um, angle to see how they can use the space to build relationship with creators, with new creators. And, and this is a completely different area and I'm following some artists on, on, on Instagram who are going into this NFT space and I see how how different it is for them all the process of creation and ideation and even the uh, you know the vision that they have which they are uh, when they're skilled to implement it in the physical realm and they need to move it to NFTs for example it's a completely new learning curve it's like you start from scratch you're not an artist anymore you you, you start again you know so uh, going back to your question I think uh, as of now the core of it is in the branding then there is definitely a business potential especially and, and maybe we haven't talked about this but especially in in Asia where the the um, the whole virtual goods thing is not only gaming topic. It's it's a lot about live streaming. It's a lot about chat, uh, messenger apps, and um, this whole ecosystem that they have in in social interactions, which happen online, and to support them, all the different you know virtual gifts that you can buy for real money to send to your friends or relatives or whatever to congratulate them with an event or something. So. Um, in that part of the world, it's a completely different story. And maybe it's very inspiring because a lot of things are now spreading that started there, uh, spreading in the Western, in the Western world. But then again, to sum up, so branding, a potential business revenue stream, and then the, the, the opportunity of the new creativity and connection with the artists and co-creating this new brand uh, implication in the virtual world. Uh, this can be also very powerful. Anna. Regrettably, we are at the end of the episode, although I love to carry on talking about this. It's fascinating, really exciting. Always puts me in a bit of a panic, but um, it's good, good to keep talking about it in the very least. So if someone wants to get in contact with you, where would you like them to do that? And what makes the perfect message to you? Uh, I would say LinkedIn would be the most appropriate place to do that. And uh, I really uh, value and appreciate when a person, when reaching out, is really upfront and straightforward and transparent about the the, 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 the reason and the, the why. You know, explain, because if we are to get in touch and to exchange, there needs to be a value, a value exchange of some sort. Uh, or at least if there is a request, I'm happy to understand it up front uh, and, and, and kind of prepare a little bit for what I, what I respond with. So if you reach out, just please make sure that it's not just a hello, I would like to connect, but something more uh, 
uh, you know, explanatory. Anna, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Hi, just before you go, I'd really appreciate it if you could take the time to write a review of the Shiny New Object Podcast on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, whatever it's called these days, or whichever podcast provider you use. We're an indie podcast, so it would go a long way for us if you could just share the word and give us a bit of a support on those channels. That would just be fantastic. If you haven't got time, that's also cool. And yeah, if you could tell your colleagues about the podcast and also, if possible, don't forget to subscribe. And I'd love to hear your feedback. Uh, if you'd like to speak on the podcast or be a guest or you think I'm asking the wrong questions, anything, I'd be super interested to hear what you think. So please email me at tom at automatedcreative.net. That's T-O-M at, uh, I'm not going to bother spelling it. Anyway, you'll work it out. Thanks so much.